welcome to Creative Block. I'm your host, V. I interview people in creative industries about their life, work, and hobbies while we doodle jam. We ask people on Twitter if they had specific topics they wanted us to discuss, as well as some drawing prompts. And today with us, we have Adam Henry and Jeremiah Cortez. Hi! Hello! Hello! Thank you guys so much for coming on the show. I'm really excited to interview you guys because you were EPing on Dogs in Space and um, you both have like a really interesting story in animation and how you both met and came to that project together. So um, I think I'm just going to start by asking the both of you kind of like growing up, what was your relationship to animation and did you always know you wanted to go into animation? Um, I'm the older one, so I'll go first, Jeremiah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I kind of went to school originally for computer science <laughs> and lasted three months in college and then switched to liberal arts. And, but, and then I just kind of meandered for a bit and, um, left New York and went to San Francisco, um, and tried to become like a comic strip artist, a editorial cartoonist, all these sort of things where I could just work at home and, and make a million dollars. So none of those, <laughs> none of those none of those panned out, and so I went. Uh, I said I got to go back to school for this, um, and it was you know it was a million years ago, but it was a great time to go back to school. So I went to CalArts in uh, 92, 93, 94, which was you know mm -hmm. kind of one of the you know the early golden ages of animation where there was more jobs than people at the time. So I went to school mm -hmm. there and and kind of got into you know my first gig on Iron Giant. Um, right out of school. I didn't even finish school at the time. They were so desperate for people. Um, so, But growing up, I didn't really know about animation because I grew up on the East Coast and I didn't like Disneyland and Disney and animation. Mm. It was kind of out of my radar until one day I saw the book Illusion of Life and mm. I like devoured that book. And from that point on, I was sort of like, oh, that's a thing. So... But I always drew. I always I was actually grew up as a musician. My dad was a Broadway musician. I went to like the Fame School briefly in New York City. Um, so I kind of started in music and then transitioned to art. That's interesting because that's you. You already had all the sensibilities that were like very important for animation. Because I feel like there's a very strong tie between musicals and animation. Um, oh yeah, especially when you get executives and say no more musicals. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny i feel like my my perception of animation or at least being in the industry for 10 years i feel like i've heard the opposite words yeah. like can you sing can <laughs> you write music <laughs> um, yeah I've, I've heard both sides of it definitely <laughs> um what about you jeremiah what was your path into kind of animation and like your how you thought about it did you always know you wanted to go into it? What school did you attend to? Yeah, for me, it was always animation. Um, I grew up with nothing but cartoons. My my dad kind of introduced me to, what was it? Like Rocky and Bullwinkle and um, Charlie Brown and, and cartoons like that. Um, and he kind of taught me like the step-by-step -step how to draw those characters. So, you know, you start with the basic giant shape. You start breaking it down to smaller shapes and there you go you drew snoopy and it was in learning that people that's how animation or, or cartoons worked was just a bunch of people drawing a 
billion drawings uh, and making it move on screen. Um, and once that kind of like clicked in my head, what animation was and that that's something people can do for a, a job, that's, that's kind of where it all started. And mm -hmm. it was always wanting to start a, a show or create a show. And, um, and so that's all I did was just study every cartoon out there I could, um, figure out what mm -hmm. they're doing in the, in, for the story, the, the animation methods, the style, um, and just, I kind of just kept going. So it was very much any kind of art class I could take in high school. Uh, I took, uh, when it came to college, uh, I went, I started in community college first and it was very much, mm -hmm. let me take all these animation courses or anything even resembling anything in the, in the field of animation. Let me take those classes. Some of them I took like three times over. And it got to a point where my instructors were just like, hey, we taught you everything you we can. There's nothing else here for you. You got to move on. You got to go to a, a private school and get out there. And so, you know, they, they pushed me to, to do so. And I went to Laguna College of Art and Design. And there is where I got my degree in animation. And then after that, it was just... Um, working on this pilot for, for dogs, it kind of just, you know, was a, like a little hobby of a project. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the idea of pitching a show and getting a show produced, um, right out of college without any, uh, experience in the industry yet was, you know, extremely unreasonable to think that, that would, that would happen. So it was very <laughs> much just... A fun pitch bible I was putting together um, with the intent of actually you know if I ever had the chance to to pitch it it would be ready to go um, I just knew it was unlikely and it took about a year no two and a half years to finally finish it and that was the pitch bible uh, some animatics some uh, crude animation just to kind of show how these characters can move around uh, being that they're so tiny and stocky you know, how could they mm -hmm. possibly work in an action scene? So I did some crude animation to show how fast they can move and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, and with my friend Ray, we wrote the, the theme song, which is the theme song you guys hear on the show now. What? That's so crazy. Yeah, we, <laughs> we were in uh, garage bands for, I don't know, like 17 years from high school, you know, into adulthood. And, you know, I, I continued... To pursue animation, um, and he went to school for for music, and so I reached out. I was like, "Hey, I want a, a theme song ready to go for the pitch if I ever pitch, um, just to kind of give them the feel of of what this show uh, would be like." And mm. and yeah, he wrote it up, and we put in the pitch uh, content, and and they liked it enough to where not only did they keep that song for the show we were able to bring Ray on as a co-composer on the show as well. Oh, very cool. And um, so did you, uh, after you went to college, um, did, did you have like a, did you start pitching right away or did you also look for like a first animation gig? How was kind of like that timeline for you in terms of like finishing up school also like how how long did you spend in community college versus uh, the... <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. um with community college i stayed way longer than anybody should 
Um, <laughs> what does that mean? Jeez, <laughs> I must have been in and out of community college for about seven years or so. I was. I, I was... think that's really great to know because I feel like often when we hear interviews, people will say like, "Oh, I did this step and this step and this step," and then it feels like, "Oh, that must have happened in just a couple of years." But like hearing that you went for seven years, I think that's like really interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, thanks a lot for like um, talking about that and kind of like uh, uh, exploring what that was like. Yeah, um, you know, it's. It was something, I don't know, maybe it was a combination of just like being a little complacent and at the same time, you know, really making that effort to to learn what you can while you're there. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it was very much community college, so I didn't have to pay my tuition. You fill out your forms and, you know, um, and I was set. The idea of going to a, a private school and actually having to pay the tuition to go there was was kind of a a big scare. It's like there's no way I could afford going to one of these fancy schools. You know, mm -hmm. at least I had the opportunity with the, the community college to get whatever I can learn here. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it was just a, some kind of a level of not feeling fully prepared to actually go out there and apply for these jobs. Mm -hmm. um, I did a little bit while I was in community college. Uh, I I tried out for storyboarding um, on The Simpsons, and then I applied for uh, I did a test for Family Guy as well. Back mm -hmm. then, it was all paper. You know, there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of storyboard pro yet. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, you would do this huge stack. You would put it in this big folder, uh, and you'll drive down to the studio and drop it off in person. Oh wow! Yeah, um, but yeah, I would I would not recommend taking as long as I did to to get out there. <laughs> um, yeah, it was just more like a, a safety net, uh, just staying within those classes and not really going out there to try. Mm. Um, but yeah, once I did, you know, was it um? Would you say it's like if it weren't for your teacher, you would have you wouldn't have taken that step? I'm pretty toward... sure I would not have. Um, they really did. They literally <laughs> sat me down and said, Hey, you got to move on. Um, and I was like, yeah, you know, cool. Maybe I still want to learn a little bit. Or they kept asking like, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And I was like, well, be an animator or, you know, a storyboard mm -hmm. artist. And it was like me playing it safe, like, or like not playing it safe, but more playing it realistically. Mm. Um, and they were just no, I don't think I don't think that's right. They kind of like were almost a little disappointed in that answer, because they're mm. like, "You're a storyteller. You have so many of these comics you you draw in class. You have so many stories you tell us all the time about these ideas of shows you would want to make. Um, mm. You're a storyteller. You're not you're not just an animator." Um, and they kind of pushed me to kind of believe that as well in myself. It's like, okay, fine. I'll. I don't think it's possible for me to be you know to go right out there and and start you know working in story but mm. you know uh if that's what you guys really see then you know i'll, I'll try mm. that's really interesting um and for you adam do you feel like you 
because um, you started as an animator and then you uh, went up the ladder and um, went into directing. Do you feel like you also had this? Because you said you also did comics. So you had this impulse to do more story rather than like just design or sticking to animation, animation. I think, I mean, I always like story, but you know, in the nineties animation was like, that was the, that was the coolest job. Um, and that was the job that there were the most people uh, in because it was still, you know, they were still doing a lot of it here. And there was, you know, Disney and mm -hmm. Warner Brothers that just started up a whole division. I was like the third third or fourth artist hired at Warner Feature. Um, you know, they did, you know, mm -hmm. She-Ra, not She-Ra, sorry, they did um, Iron Giant and Quest for Camelot and uh, Space Jam, the first Space Jam. Mm -hmm. But... You know, 2D died uh, in the late 90s and it was everyone had a choice. You could either go um, and be a CG animator and continue animating or you go into story were kind of the two main choices. And I love to draw still. And I was like, oh, I, could, I can still draw, you know, if I go into story yeah. and it seemed like really fun. So, you yeah. know, that was like in the early 2000s. Um, and so, you know, I, I wanted to keep drawing. And, and again, and I love story and it seemed, you know, And my first sort of storyboarding jobs, I was basically animating, you know, and they're like, yeah, you don't need to do that many drawings, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, that's so funny because you were like, because there's a lot of conversation in boards that it's like the technology made the board artists animate. Mm -hmm. But I have a little bit of an inkling and correct me if I'm wrong, but that because when animation became uh, primarily CG, a lot of the animators who love drawing went into boards. So there's there's not only just the technology, but there's also a lot of people. And I have a lot of friends who were animators and now board artists who just miss animating a lot. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We all kind of gummed up the works of storyboards, I think, by drawing too much in there. Because when, <laughs> when I first started, like I remember seeing boards for whole 11-minute shows that were like, 300 panels you know or 400 mm -hmm. panels it was like crazy um now you see like you know 2,000 3,000 panels for you know a, a show it's it's gotten somewhat out of hand um yeah <laughs> and uh that's like a uh, just like a uh, technical question would you say that for for you guys as EPs and overseeing every single step of the way for an episode when you have a board with a lot of panels, do you feel like it helps the process in terms of like editing and whatnot? Or do you feel like um, it makes it uh, more work for the editor and just actually having to take out panels? Like what's your feeling in terms of like the amount of panels that you get now per episode or like? I think, I think it's interesting, you know, when I started on Loud House, you know, I'm still a little bit leaning towards more panels and less and more acting mm -hmm. than less. But when I got there, they said, you know, the showrunner at the time said, you don't need to draw a lot of poses, you know, Jamfield, which mm -hmm. is the Canadian studio that animates Loud House and has been animating it for, you know, the last six seasons. They add all that stuff. And I was kind of surprised because most of the TV shows I've been on, like, you know, what you send is what you get back. So if you send True. one drawing for three seconds, you're going to get one animated yeah. shot for three seconds. <laughs> But so it kind of depends on who your animation studio is. Um, so it, it definitely varies. And, you know, and there's different shows like a Family Guy show is basically mm -hmm. a character layout show. You know, you are drawing yeah. every single pose blink action in there you know yeah. kind of go ahead Jeremy. 
No, like uh, even when I was applying for a Family Guy, you know, their whole thing was the storyboards have to be on model, like on model. You've had, mm. you practically have to trace to get that kind of, you know, uh, accuracy and whatnot. Yeah, something that I've heard for like um, a lot of adult shows, like for example, Big Mouth or um, yeah, Simpsons or. Um, there was another one I forgot, but like, uh, well, yeah, I guess, fam- yeah, Family Guy, hundred percent, where like you all, you, yeah, you, you pretty much have to trace, and the level of clean that's expected, or at least now, is like the the drawings are almost you could almost just kind of like color them in, and it's like a final frame. Right. And here's, and here's my thing, like you know, most shows now are done through Toon Boom. You know, there's not a lot of two D straight two D shows where they're drawing in paper. Like Shira was the last one that I worked on that they actually korea were drawing pencil on paper but it's mm. these are all like built models in the computer why would anyone draw it tight you know they're not using yeah. your drawings mm-hmm. to get the model right you know so it, it always it still kind of confuses me why anyone in, in a toon boom show would worry about anything other than proportion and you know, right yeah breach <laughs> yeah, exactly because you know they're they're mainly rigs at this point so why does the the boards have to be so accurate if you're just gonna plop in a a build that's already you know proportioned and and correct in its in its uh, size? I wonder. And I wonder if I don't know. That's something that I'm like. I mean, maybe like one day I'll I'll manage to get a guest who like works closely with that pipeline and can I I'll be able to get answers. But I my speculative guess is I wonder if there's maybe um and a thought of like skipping over some um designs like calling out designs so actually maybe this is something that i haven't really talked a lot about on this podcast but um and you guys can like talk about this in more details because your eps uh once you get the boards um approved and then you're going to be calling out designs and special poses um kind of what are you uh how much do you delegate to the lead character designer to call out these poses and what kind of specific poses do you want to call out for design yeah i mean on loud house it's definitely a process um and again it is a little different because it's a show that's been around so long and they know the characters well but it's Mm. it's all on the art director like at least for me um Mm. she picks the ones that seem extreme and she thinks they need help on. And that's the thing, the art director kind of knowing the overseas studio and what they're good at, what they're bad at, what if you send it, it's going to come back wrong or what, what they need, what extra help, where do they need help? And so they just go through the whole board and pick out um, the special poses uh, mm. to, to, for the uh, character designer to do. So I'm it's, and I'll just, I'll see it at the end. Um, but it's really, if you got a good art director, a good character designer, just get out of the way. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and how was that experience like on Dogs in Space, like the from boards to design? Oh, it was hell because Jeremiah is at heart a character designer, as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, well, Jeremiah, you can speak to that because Jeremiah was in charge, basically, along with Adam Bernier of character design. Yeah, with character designs, mm, what do I want to talk about? Um, 
Yeah, it was as far as the the um, character designs are concerned. When I was pitching this thing and getting the pitch bible ready, I was aware that you know I watched uh, like the pilot of um, Steven Universe, where it was you know there were a little bit more detailed, there were more atomically correct in in some ways, or you know closer to real, um, and the lighting was a lot darker, you know a lot more like spotlight lighting on on the characters and whatnot um and then you get the actual show and you know they're a lot more simplified you know the details have been really toned down and they're more animation friendly um so i knew that that was a possibility you know that hey i could try to make it look like what i wanted to look like initially as far as like what i was doing prior when it was just like this little comic book and a sketchbook um or i can just get it to a a animation friendly style stylized version and so from the beginning i did have that in mind and i had these characters ready to go as far as being animatable um and just working on this this idea for two and a half years you had a lot of concept art that i was building up and so going into it there was already a lot to work with so you know i worked pretty pretty closely with the with the art department and with the character designs um and just it be, it didn't become this thing of like trying to figure out what the the shape language or what style we wanted to do it and it was more just dissecting why i draw these characters the way i do like dissecting like the rules and mechanics of how to mm-hmm. get characters in this specific style and and shape mm-hmm. to animate you know what where do you have overlapping lines? When do you ignore overlapping lines when you know you, they should be there? Mm-hmm. Um, just the anatomy of them. We had to go into, even in the animation, going into squash and stretch. You know, these characters in the beginning, was they were a little bit more gummy. They were, you know, they had that squash and stretch bounce to them. But it mm-hmm. was like having to say, no, you know, these characters have bones. So you have to really think, of these characters with skulls and whatnot so you can't if you're gonna have them zip around or move really quickly you can't stretch their head you can't bend the forehead because there's a skull in there Mm. um if these guys can't reach the top of their heads they cannot reach the top of their heads um so you see in some of these episodes i think even in episode one and pilot um you know normally you would have a character bring their index finger to their ear and then they they start talking through their comms. Mm-hmm. Um, in this show, no one, none of these dogs can physically reach their ears at all. Um, <laughs> so you, we still have them do that action, but they're just touching the side of their cheek. Uh, <gasps> but it still works. Like people still register what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had to figure out workarounds like that. I know, Adam, you remember like Chonies is the most simplified. Simple character, but he was the most like challenging when we well, went the, into animation. The simpler, simpler, the harder it got for them to animate the character. Yeah. Be- oh, yeah. Because Jeremiah's style is very graphic, and so mm-hmm. the less sort of points of sort of volume that you have, the trickier it is when you're going so graphic. And Choni's was yeah, so so simple it was hard to turn. And Jeremiah spent <laughs> many, 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 many nights redrawing chonies for the overseas studio 
Yeah, they would. Oh, uh, yeah. They would send us, um, you know, the the animation would get dailies, and then from there I would screenshot, you know, whatever scenes or poses or whatnot, and I would just have to red line on top, like, oh, his his eye wouldn't be mm. where it's placed right now, or it wouldn't have this weird shape, or you know, um, it would actually overlap the the head at this point at this angle it would start overlapping the head or just keep it behind the head. It doesn't make sense, but mm. it, it'll look right if we keep it behind the head for this pose or something like that. Um, but yeah, Tony's was, Tony's was a hard one. Even down to like the last couple of episodes, I was still redlining Tony's animation. Other characters, the animators got a handle on. I had less, less red lines for them, but Tony's mm. was pretty much all the way to the end. That's really interesting because um, that means that you were like, you were kind of also taking on the, would, would you say like redlining animation is usually kind of lumped into the role of a supervising director or um, an art director or like, are those roles similar? Um, I guess it's a question for both oh. Adam and Jeremiah in terms of like, kind of defining these roles yeah we i would kinda, imagine yeah we, we split it. up we split up duties on that um yeah i said duties um <laughs> so like jeremiah obviously being character design you know genius you know he did all of that when animation came back and they needed a, some drawings to sort of fix their animation or for me to explain to them what was needed um you know, Jeremiah could have done it, but, you know, like I said, we, you split duties when you're running a show. So I did a lot of the animation fixes. Um, so that's kind of how we split. And those are usually the two things that come up for redlining is either a character design fix um, or animation. Hmm. That's really, that's really cool. Like, I kind of want to also ask you guys a little bit more about, um, now that we're talking really um, production of like Dogs in Space, how, um, so Jeremiah, how did you kind of pitch to Netflix and then how did they partner you up with Adam or like, how did, did you guys' uh, uh, partnership happen from the pitch until meeting and like, going forward oh, um together on the show a lot of money cross palms man i should tell you <laughs> it's hollywood it's hollywood baby um, <laughs> no it was, it was a very sweet tale right jeremiah yeah i think so um we well what happened is you know my i stick my stories a little backwards um so once i pitched to netflix which is its own story in itself um and they gave me the phone call saying hey we want to buy it I was like, oh, okay, cool. What do we do now? And they said, well, first you need you need an agent. You need some kind of representation. Uh, you got a week. So, you know, normally you would have already representation and they're the ones who are, you know. I was just going to ask you, how did you get to pitch to Netflix without rep? <laughs> uh, my friend Ray, the, the my friend who wrote the uh, theme song, he was at one of these, he, has a, he attended one of these, uh, I don't know, mother and me parents and me things where you know you just kind of sit around in a circle with with your newborns um mm -hmm. I, i'm not sure what those things are called but he was at one of those he met he met a guy there uh brandon hung who was mm -hmm. a executive at netflix who took pitches for family animated content 
That's so cool. We actually have Brendan. We've interviewed Brendan on the show um, before. He's like one of our early episodes. That's so interesting. It's so cool. Yeah, no, he's a, he's a cool guy. We still do a karaoke together. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, but he was just like, hey, I met this guy, Brendan. Um, I, you know, he works at Netflix and takes pitches and stuff. Do you want me to let him know you have a show to pitch? And this was like maybe a couple weeks after I completed all the pitch material wow. and it was very much well i have the i have the pitch bible animation uh spec scripts uh character designs i had i even had like uh, character um uh, turnaround charts mm-hmm. um and it got to a point where i was just like if i do anything more it's overkill um oh, I, right. I, I covered my bases i have everything to show that i know how to do this because i knew very well if i did get the opportunity to pitch this my lack of industry experience was gonna hurt me so let me do samples of every you know department of the what a production would be just to kind of show them i, I know what i'm doing mm-hmm. um and so once i finished it was just okay well let me move on to working on something else because I'm not going to pitch this thing. No one's going to take my my pitch. Um, and so Ray let me know, hey, I met this guy. I was like, yeah, if he wants to, if he wants to look at it, if you know, sure. And a couple weeks went by. Ray's like, hey, he's he. I talked to him about it. He said he'll look at it, but it better be good. And I was like, okay, <laughs> cool. Um, I'm ready. There's there's nothing else I can do on it. So let's do this. And he gave me his email. I was like, ah, you know, an executive giving you their email for a pitch. Like he's just at this point, I'm like, okay, he's just being polite. He just gave me an email. He, I don't, you know, it's going to fall. It's going to get buried within his emails. He's an executive. He's busy. He was just Mm -hmm. being nice. I got an email. So I sent it all. I was like, okay, well, you know, it ends there. Um, and about two weeks later, Netflix called said, Hey, we want you to come pitch in person. Would you want to do that? I said, cool. And so I went, pitched in person. Um, and then after that, it was the same thing. Where I was like, ah, well, that was nice. I, you know, at least I got to see the Netflix building. That's cool. <laughs> and I went back to my, my day job as a forklift driver and, and mm-hmm. crane operator. And sidebar crane operator that's i heard that's really hard it's like, dangerous yeah because i i had to deal with um two ton <laughs> bags of like glass beads um or uh titanium like titanium white it was like this um uh, chalk at that point it was all it was all bought a bunch of different pigments and stuff that we would dump into these giant bins and that would go into a the conveyor machine of like we would produce the the material that you would use to you you know you add water you mix it around but we would make the the pigment paint that you would use for the on the traffic streets so mm-hmm. the white and yellow that you would see on the on the road um, that's what we produced so you know I'm dealing with these giant ton bags and I have to I have to move them over whatever respected bin that they're supposed to be assigned to and then on the bottom of that bag i have to untie it and make sure that it pours within this tiny little hole on top of these giant containers and And all that with the crane and all that with the crane so my hands (laughs) my hands are underneath two tons 
you know, and and at any moment, uh, these bags could give out. I could lose an arm. Um, they've told me oh. stories like this. Yeah, it's happened to people here. <laughs> it's just like, oh wow. crap. Um, you know, there's stories. So it was, it was a, you know, it was a pretty demanding job. Um, but that's what I was doing when I got the phone call that they wanted to buy it. And I was like, oh, wow. okay, sweet. You know, but I was, um, I'm pretty much a, a big researcher guy. I like to like just cover my bases. So when I was in the process of developing the pitch, it was, let me research how to pitch. Let me research, you know, how other shows did it as far as, you know, uh, I read the art of for Bojack, um, Adventure mm. Time, Steven Universe, um, and a bunch of other films and stuff. And a lot of what I was reading in there was, we got development, but we don't have the green light for the show. Uh, mm. Adventure Time, I think they had the the pilot done, but then Nickelodeon mm -hmm. didn't want to air it. Um, and so Pendleton War, I think it like sat on the shelf for a few years. Like, like I think it was three to four years until they actually were able to show it. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they 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 found a workaround because they legally couldn't show it like on youtube or anything because it was property of ne uh, nickelodeon and um if they don't if they don't officially air it then you can't put it out there on your own hmm. uh, so they found like a way to to sneak it into nick at night and they played it there and so legally it's been played so we can now post it and you know that's how the show kind of uh, got an audience following and that's mm -hmm. how that got made but um wow i knew that Getting, get, getting the show bought for development didn't mean anything. So when they said, oh, we want to buy the show, I was like, okay, cool. And I think they were expecting me to be a little bit more excited, but I just didn't want to because it's not a green light yet. Right. Um, but yeah, they told me, find a representation. I had a week. I found uh, Gotham. I went with Gotham. Mm -hmm. um, and... We kind of just talked about what the process was going to be. Netflix is going to have me meet with uh, writers to find my mm -hmm. head writer. Uh, and they're going to have you meet with executives to to co-show run with you. Mm -hmm. um, and so Netflix is like, well, we'll get a bunch of people together and we'll have you interview and see what clicks. Um, but prior to that, Gotham said, hey, we got a guy, Adam Henry. Um, guy. He's really good. A guy. Yeah, we got a guy. <laughs> Um, and he's really good. We think you'll, you'll work, you'll work, you'll work well with him. And, um, you know, he has the material. He likes it. He's very interested. We want you to meet with him. I was like, cool, let's, let's do this. So I met with Adam at, what is it? The common commissary. commissary. Yep. Glendale. Yeah. Yeah. We met there and it was just like, he looked his demeanor was just already, okay, I kind of understand who this character is. And I sat down with him and, you know, from what you can tell from uh, Adam's voice and cadence is very much, he's, he's a very soft, warm hearted kind of wow. character and, and just talking to him and, and he just went on and on about what he loved about the pitch, uh, the pitch material and, all he he started talking about what what he wanted to do with it and where the mm -hmm. possibilities were and 
and where the heart was and it was it was in that passion of of knowing what I was trying to do with this show rather than it just be another cartoon where it's just mayhem ensues all the time mm-hmm. you know there's a heart to it there's a very sweet mm-hmm. heart of they're just dogs and they just want to go home oh um, yeah and and, then, yeah, and in those meetings you know when I met a lot of people you know and immediately meet Jeremiah and right off the bat you're like oh this this guy's sweet and and sincere um but i knew i was mm. selling myself to jeremiah i wasn't selling myself as like you know because a lot of people could have helped him make the show but you know mm. what was important i thought was like how well are we going to get along for mm. the mm. next two years that's more important because you know the creative chops are there but if the relationship isn't there it's just going to be really painful yeah, and how did you how did you kind of figure that out in a um in an in an initial meeting? Do you guys have like questions that you like a specific set of questions you like to ask, or is it just kind of like it's you're just looking for a vibe? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm I'm kind of a give me like thirty seconds with anybody, and I'll I can tell you right away how I feel about them. Okay, <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm like a, I'm, a, I'm, imme- psychic. I'm immediately judgmental. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, so for me, at least, you know, I knew right away, I kind of got Jeremiah really fast. I mean, there's some people that you, mm. you can't read and they're just always going to be this sort of opaque sort of character for you, even if you know them for years at a time, like I've known, mm. you know, some development executives <laughs> like that, where it's like nothing I say or do can kind of break past that sort of poker face wall. Mm. Um, but you know, Jeremiah, um, is not into any of that. So that was refreshing. Yeah, I, I felt the same as like what um, Adam's saying as far as reading people. I feel like I could get a person down really fast. Um, and it was just, I don't know. I'm pretty sure I knew it was Adam instantly. It was very much mm-hmm. that kind of just a vibe I got from him. Um, and, and how many people, oh, sorry for interrupting. Did you meet up with a lot of other people as well? I did. Uh what happened is I met with Adam, we talked for a couple hours there, and then I went home, and then I think it was like the next day, because this was later in the evening, I, th- I from what I remember at least. Um, but I went, told Netflix, hey, I found I found my executive, you know, we just need the, mm-hmm. the head writer. And mm-hmm. Netflix was just like, well, that's the first person you met, you know, let's, let's really have you meet with people, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um we got a list of people let's see. let's just do that and i was just like okay fine it makes sense like, you know maybe i just got a little excited and, and just wanted to start this show or something i don't know i was just like okay cool let's do that um and i met with quite a bit i want to say it was close to like nine different people by the end um and a lot of them were great there was some that were close and i know they had the excitement but they didn't they didn't really latch on to the heart as much as i would want other than you know rather than just really being excited about the comedy of these you know astronaut dogs Mm. um you know i really wanted to make sure the heart was kind of like the main focus and Mm -hmm. so there were there were quite a there was a little handful of, of people that i really really liked but um it was very much like man adam was adam was just on it like that connection is just i'm not really feeling that level of connection with all these people um i feel like you go into those meetings and it's sort of like you know leave your ego at the door 
mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I think a lot of people in those meetings are trying to like either impress somebody mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, play a game mm-hmm. or just sort of, you know, say, you know, look at me. And I'm like, don't look at me. You're paying me to make someone else's show. When you pay me to make my show, then yeah, look at me. But for me, mm-hmm. it was always like, it was, even though we collaborated, you know, really 50 50 on this show at, mm-hmm. at the end of the day for me it was always jeremiah's show that i was trying to make not my show although it became our show but still that's actually that's actually something that um i feel like we haven't really covered a lot on this podcast is having someone like you adam who comes in and helps out with shows because um is is that what you was that the role you also had on shira um princess of power it, it was um, or, it was under you know very kind of different circumstances. It was actually my first like job where I was you know managing twenty or thirty mm-hmm. people, and it was Noelle's first opportunity, to, obviously, to run a show because mm-hmm. I think she'd only been a writer before that. So I think you know there was definitely growing pains in there in that show, and kind of I love it because everything I need to know to run a show now I basically learned on Shira. Um, but the, they set it up a little oddly. DreamWorks is a little weird in that, you know, mm-hmm. um, at the end of the day, Noel was the EP and I was the supervising producer. So, yeah, it, I was it, wondering about what that uh, title uh, meant. And is, is there like a hierarchy like um, that comes with that title comparing that to EP or like kind of what does supervising producer mean? Every everyone's different, like. Again, mm-hmm. like on Loud House now, you know, we have an EP, Mike Rubiner, you know, who's been on the show mm-hmm. from the beginning and he's the head writer. So I see mm-hmm. him as the boss, but he's not making it. He's not making the show day to day. I'm making the show day to day. So, you know, to me, I'm the showrunner on Loud House because I'm the one every every day at 9 a.m. Mm-hmm. I start answering everyone's questions. And then Mike jumps in, you know, at the sort of the big points during the show. So basically we're together. We're kind of making the show along with you know 30 other people um mm-hmm. but kind of the buck day day to day the buck stops with me and on Shira, um that was kind of the structure but it, again i think because noel and i were both new at it it was a little mm. messy <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah that, that i mean that makes sense and that's something that is like um that I kind of want to shed some light on for like the audience in terms of like, um, usually it's very, very rare that there's just like a single person who's at the top, who's like show running. Usually there's like a couple people, like I've heard of shows where it can be up to like, maybe like four that, I, and then everybody kind of splits their, um, finds a way to, to split where, um, each role ends and and like begins and ends. Yep. I guess somebody's like more design, somebody's more writing, somebody's more, I don't know, boards. And then it's kind of like figuring out that um, flow, I guess. Yeah, and I and I think you need that. I need you need someone in charge. I think people, mm-hmm. you know, want someone in charge um, and someone who you know really knows everything that needs to be done and on a show you know I, I i know on three below you know the dreamworks show um they used to joke because they you know they had a showrunner um and but every time guillermo del toro walked in the building they said it cost them a million dollars because he would just look at everything and and just make them redo it <laughs> <laughs> um so you know it really varies from show to show what supervising producer mm. is um but to me it's generally 
you know, the person that's running the show day to day. Oh yeah, that's really interesting. That's really interesting because yeah, it's something that's like yeah, I'm I'm excited to hear that you have like all these different experiences and like would you say that for you it would it's yeah it's been different on every show right every time that you've been like a supervising producer right right and mm. I mean I was you know EP co EP with Jeremiah on on dogs so in a way that was kind of of all the shows I've been on that was the one I had the most control over mostly mm. because we were you know pretty much always on the same page and we just kind of did things hand in hand. Um, or I did things, you know, that were kind of more, you know, uh, production related. So Jeremiah could be more on the creative side at times. Mm -hmm. But like on Loud House, you know, I'm sort of the final word on art and story and and animatics and everything. Everyone kind of looks at it, but you know, I have to sort of approve it before it ships, basically. Right. Yeah. You're you're the final the the final approval before anything ships. <clears throat> right. And the one kind of they kind of count on the supervising producer to catch everything, you know, so that before mm. it ships, there's nothing that's going to come back wonky or blow a lot mm. of your budget on because we didn't send it out right. You know, so you're really trying to make sure all the creative is exactly what it needs to be before it's out of your hands for 14 weeks while it gets animated in, you know, Korea or the Philippines or Canada. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, did you did you have rep to start kind of like stepping into these roles like did you have rep prior i'm guessing you have rep now i do yeah <laughs> i had briefly i had natural talent <clears throat> um <laughs> and then no it was a good two years but then i got a job that they had nothing to do with so and i was able to extricate myself and save 10 percent um, mm, from that mm -hmm. um but then um i think i, I guess it was at she-ra that i jumped back into having representation just after mm. just after Shira. Um, but yeah, you know, I when you're at the level where you're you want to be a showrunner or you want to be an EP, you need representation to walk into it without is is dangerous. Um, but if you can get away mm. with it on any other job other than that, if you can mm. get the jobs on your own, do it and save them money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's like a big, that's something that I feel is like not really talked about a lot in animation and especially for people who want to like pitch a show, run a show or like um, help run a show is kind of like knowing um, like how to approach agents and like, I guess for, for you, Jeremiah, it was kind of easier because you already had a studio that was like, we want your show. So now like everybody wants to oh, yeah. you, right? And I was... <laughs> I was, I had a week to find representation. So Netflix is like, here's some people we work well with. Um, mm -hmm. I also did my own research and, and went looking for people. But, you know, I started, you know, if I started on Monday, by Wednesday, I was just getting phone calls left and right from agencies and stuff. Hey, can you come down here to, you know, wow. uh, Hollywood for a meeting at two? Oh, okay, yeah, I'm in the area. I'll, I'll go. Hey, can you can you meet us over here in Beverly Hills? Okay, I'll I'll go. But it was it was just a lot of. By the time I got out of one meeting with an agency, I was getting a phone call from somebody else, you know, a couple blocks down, and and driving to them. So yeah, it was a little it was a little backwards for me. It wasn't mm -hmm. it wasn't the traditional. Hey, can you look at my portfolio and and maybe see something in there that you think I could uh, get mm -hmm. a gig somewhere and and you could get your percentage off of it. Um, 
it was very much oh he they already want him they already want his show let's let's get him in they, here now they smelled the money they did <laughs> Which, yeah I mean, that's the that's their, the thing it's, it's like job. you have to right yeah they i mean they it's a partnership so mm-hmm. they want you to bring something to the table and that's usually with like the the artist like working some kind of a job um but I guess like for you, Adam, like how did you get rep the first time? Like were you and when did you did were you the one to look for a rep or was it also like a situation kind of like Jeremiah where like like you got into a good position and then you were like, well, maybe I need somebody to help me out with that. Yeah. The contracts. I'm trying to remember it's actually I have to think back. Was it before Dog in Space or after She-Ra that I got that I jumped on to Gotham? Um I was, I was with Gotham before I jumped on Dog, so I must have jumped mm-hmm. on there um, either some, at some point during She-Ra, I guess. And, you know, and that's the thing. If <laughs> they really like it, if you already have a job and you want them to represent you, because then they don't really have to do anything. Um, <laughs> but I think you do have to be a commodity of some sort for mm-hmm. um, for them to bring you on. They're not just going to be like, you know, I'm a really good artist and you know, I'm looking for representation. They're not going to really care that much you're gonna you have to have some kind of cool ip or you have to basically like already have the job in hand and you just need someone to sort of handle the contract mm-hmm. yeah you know same thing with any studio when you when you apply they look at your work and see if you're gonna be of any kind of benefit to the production um these agencies they'll look at your work and if if they think they can get you work and and make that commission then they'll take you on if they don't think they don't think they can sell you anywhere then that's that's where it kind of ends i just i don't want to you know adam how did you get that job on shira because i heard that dreamworks is like a place where they like to uh, keep people around and, and promote them and do you feel like for you that was uh you were like kind of going out of your way to move up or were you just kind of like around doing really well dreamworks was like would love this guy he should be the one to kind of help out with shira i think it was a few things one you know everyone at dreamworks was from nickelodeon basically because mark taylor was the one that was the head of production at nickelodeon when i was there working on you know tack and nihao kailan and kung fu panda and robot monster and dora and the shorts program the random cartoons so i knew mark really well um so then he went to dreamworks and um eventually he was able to start their tv division when netflix you know gave dreamworks five billion dollars to do 700 hours of content so i mean we talked earlier about you know right now being a little bit of the bottom of the wave that was the (laughs) top that was the top of the wave there were not enough people to help you know run shows at that time mm-hmm. um so it's a mixture of you know they needed a lot of people to run a lot of shows i was i kind of interviewed for boss baby before she-ra and, oh, and cool. just missed mm-hmm. that one and but then i met you know so it's kind of same with jeremiah you know i met noel and we mm-hmm. got along really well you know and uh and so you know kind of like she had met a lot of people also and so it's kind of the same thing where apparently I'm good in a room. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, I met her and, you know, they decided to, you know, have me um, run the show with her. But it was, it was, you know, that the wave was cresting and there were a lot of jobs. Um, Mark Taylor, head of DreamWorks TV at the time, knew me, as did the, his vice president, Monique. So, you know, I was well, well regarded by that crowd. 
Um, and then I got along with Noel. So, yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Like, because it's something also that like, I was, I wonder in terms of like, um, you know, moving up in like, like production roles is um there's a part of like sometimes you have to go after the jobs but there's also a part of like sometimes it's just like the relationships and like sticking around in the studio and when people have known you for a while at the studio they're like oh yeah like we can like that person knows kind of what we do in this company and like the overall style we're trying to achieve and like there's maybe like a little bit of like more like trust that way as well i can't emphasize how important it is that it's you know it's a cliche but hollywood it's about the people you know you know i, mm -hmm. I mean i went to cal arts and i learned you know a little bit about you know animation and everything and it was awesome and it was super fun um but it was really about you know that was where i first met my tribe you start, you met the people that were going into the business also. And now you had like 30, 40 people that were all kind of, you know, heading into the business and you could talk to them when you're looking for work. And so like building that tribe was really important. You know, I really feel bad for people that have gotten into the business in the last three years because it's, you know, it's been remote. And how do yeah. you, how do you build the tribe, you know, from mm -hmm. in that environment? I mean, you do it online. Obviously, that's a lot of it. But it's yeah. really hard if so I would say it's you definitely want to be really nice to everybody, you know, except the mean people. You can ignore them. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, that's so funny. I feel like um what was it? I was writing the autobio of Will Smith, and there's a like I think there's like a moment where he's like like his grandma was like, be nice to everybody on your way up because you're never you never know when you're gonna go down. And I was like well, it's, you know, in animation, it's super true because when I was on Robot Monster, our revisionists were um, one of the Houghton brothers who is, does Gravity Falls. Oh, Fall, cool. Does Gravity yeah. Falls. Darren Nefsey, um, star, um, creator, you know, star in the power of, I forget now. Um, so she was um, Aminder, who's also a, a rock star out there right now. So like three of our revisionists all potentially could, you know, could have been or could be my boss at some point um mm -hmm. you know and i was a director at the time on that so it's really it really is important to be nice to people and that you know that doesn't just mean for animation that's every everywhere <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah that's so true i feel like especially well i guess especially this industry like hollywood in general just because it's like it's so like you said it's like so people um focused it's like very uh like the networking and just like the relationships like just people knowing you knowing that like what kind who, what kind of a person you are like what your sensibilities are and like and if you're easy to work with <laughs> yeah and i you know I, I a lot of people kind of sort of don't like to network you know network has kind of a bad connotation but i network with people i like you know i'm not going to network mm -hmm. someone who's a jerk or is hard to get along with you know so yeah, yeah i network but i network with you know nice people <laughs> and I don't think there's anything, you know, I don't, and people know that. I think people feel like, oh, they know that I'm like, you know, networking or, you know, doing this for some reason other than that I want to be their friend. But everyone knows that we're all in the business together. We know we're all, everyone's striving to, you know, work and get a job. Don't, don't be too shy about networking. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's a great piece of advice, actually. <laughs> um, what do you feel like? What's your philosophy on networking, Jeremiah? <laughs> 
pet, my philosophy on networking. Hmm, do I have one? <laughs> um, you know, what I try to do is people have been more, they've been putting a lot more effort into reaching out to me and, and really wanting to just, uh, you know, ask questions or get some advice and stuff. Um, and for me, it's, I always say yes. So, and I've met a couple of really cool people that way. Um, I met some writers uh, that just, once the first season came out, they, they reached out on LinkedIn and sent me a message and they like, hey, you know, um, I really like the show. I, you know, would it be, would you be up for getting coffee and just chatting? Mm-hmm. And I would do so. And I have a couple of, of friends now, for, you know, that, that reached out that way that are in the writing realm of things. And um, we meet, meet like maybe at least once a month, you know, just to talk scripts and what are you writing? What am I writing or creating? Um, mm. And just, you know, spitballing ideas, giving advice like, ah, this part, you know, I think you don't need this part and stuff like that. Um, so for me, it's, yeah, networking is pretty, pretty fun. Um, I'm, I'm not the one that usually likes to, to reach out to people. I, I have though, um, but it's not really something I tend to focus too much on. Um, but anytime anyone reaches out to me, I definitely, you know, try to make that effort to see them either through Zoom or in person. Some of them have been like in New York. Or there was this one aspiring writer in, I think it was Australia, who reached out. And we had to, like, figure out the time difference and figure out mm-hmm. what day to do a Zoom meeting. Um, but for me, it's if you're going to make the effort and you're going to want to network and stuff like that, I'm not going to be a jerk about it. Um, mm-hmm. I will make the effort because I remember when I was aspiring to, to get into this industry and I would reach out to people and, you know... Some of them you wouldn't get a response at all. Of course, this was when, you know, the internet wasn't that big yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a little tricky to find people. Um, but, yeah, if people make the effort. I'm, I want to be able to give back and, uh, you know, offer what I can to them and advice. And if, you know, they, they stick to it, if, you know, maybe they're not where they should be artistically or in their writing or something, and I give them the notes and if they make that effort to, to, uh, you know, make those, those tweaks or those adjustments and then they reach out again and I could see they're really trying. It's, those are people that I, I start to believe in and I go, mm-hmm. okay, this person's going to make it because they're, they have that grit. They have the, the resilience and they're, they're continuing to pursue it. It wasn't so much, Hey, can you look at my stuff? And they were just hoping I was going to say, Oh, it's real good. Here's a job. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because sometimes yeah. you will get those people where you then you start to tell them, ah, you you should work on you know your your form or you should work more on uh, your 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 lighting or whatever. You give them the notes and you could kind of see it in their face, like oh oh, like I have to work, I, you know, I have to do more. But um, the the subtext of of our first meeting that was what I was saying, Jeremiah. <laughs> <laughs> give me a job. Give me a job. Give me a job. Give it. <laughs> but I mean, you know, you, you, you get to read the people, um, and you just know, like, there's just some people that come up, and I could just tell, okay, they they really just want something, um, 
now. They want a job now. They want, you know, some kind of instant gratification now. Mm. And, you know, you kind of, you do the polite, you know, oh, it looks good, cool, you know, just work on this, you know, keep at it. And then you just kind of have to play it a little colder and just, you know, cut it short. Um, but it's it's not because, you know, I don't want to talk to them or anything. It's very much just, this is what you need to do, get to it. Mm-hmm. Um, no one's going to do it for you. I'm not going to do it for you. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you leave it as is. And if they reach out again, then cool. You know, that's that's what I would like to see in, a, in somebody who wants to pursue this as a career. Yeah, totally. I think this is really great. That's a really great answer, especially for people listening, because networking is always like um, a little tricky, like because, you know, we're all like like artists. We're all like awkward and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. N- not the best at like social interaction. So I, th- I thought that was very insightful. Um, oh, yeah, because like, like at uh, what is it? Um, Lightbox uh, a couple weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Did you guys go? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had a little booth, so people coming over and saying, you know, the, they love the show or the show helped them get them through a hard time. Um, stuff like that was really nice to hear. And That's crazy. I wish I had known you were there. I was. I also had a table, but yeah, it was just so busy. It was so busy. Like those three days were really, really busy. Yeah, it was a little tricky to, even for me, I don't think I actually walked around to the last day. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then everybody's already sold out. But um, but yeah, you were saying people were like coming up and telling you how much they love the show and and all that. Yeah. And and it was there where I kind of saw the variety of people of, oh, hey, man, I worked on this show and I really like your show. OK, bye. Or, hey, you know, I really love the show. I really want to get into animation. Do you have any advice for me? It's, you know, you got like this array of people at different uh, stages um and it was there where i was just like where i think i had a little bit more insight to how hard it is to walk up to people and talk and Mm. because i used to be the one like at comic-con or you know the ctns and stuff where i would walk up to these booths of like chris sanders or other people Mm. um and you get nervous you you kind of start losing your voice you you know you Mm -hmm. have a lot of stuttering happening you don't you can't even find the words you couldn't make a a proper sentence and to see that on the other side of people coming up to me and and having that kind of nervousness this is like kind of puts it in a perspective like yeah it is kind of hard to walk up to somebody even that was, what, that was my one panic attack ever was because um, I, I wanted to be a cartoonist i wanted to be charles schultz based when mm. i was when i was young you know be a comic strip artist and i met him or i, I was at a, a the uh, the cartoon museum in San Francisco back in the day, and I got within about fifteen feet of him, and then I just stopped, and I was just like, "What do I say to like this person that was like, you know, it was like a god to me?" And it was so funny because I just had this weird look on my face, and he he turned his he turned his head and looked at me, and I think I must have looked like a like a stalker or like a mad hitman. And then I then I just slunk away. Never got to meet him. Because it's, it's pretty funny, um, you know, what was it, uh, Lightbox the other week. You know, I have these people coming up and saying hi, and I could see them being nervous, and I'm like, oh, that's cute, they're nervous. Um, and then, you know, I look down the, the rows, and I see Chris Sanders' booth, and I've, I've met him a couple times, but I'm sure he doesn't remember me at all. But um, 
I was like, oh, I'll go say hi. And even just going to say hi to Chris, even after the show, you know, two seasons, um, seeing how other people come to talk to me and whatnot, and just knowing all of that side of it all, going over and going to talk to him, I still got that, uh, 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 uh. <laughs> I was like, uh, I, I know you don't remember me, but, you know, you, you came and you spoke to my class one time at Laguna, and I've talked to you a couple times at your booth at other places, uh, and, you know, it, it, the whole, I appreciate what you did, I, I got a show, and, you know, it's, it's partly because of the kind of inspiration or motivation that I got from him when he did those visits. But even just going to talk, just chit-chat, I'm not looking for a job, I'm not looking for advice, I just want to say thank you. That was still, you know, a, a very nerve-wracking moment, and it's just like, you, you got to... You gotta have that like patience or that empathy for those for those people that are still you know trying to get in and, and having that kind of bravery to walk up to you and ask for advice and stuff like that. You gotta give it to them because you know it's not an easy thing to do. Even for me walking up to Chris after the show and everything, it was still very much oh, okay. You know, this is a real thing. Um, yeah, that's true. I really agree with that. I feel it's it, it's like. Um, I don't know. And that's also one of the, the big reasons why I'm I'm doing this podcast is that I'm hoping that like everybody who's listening not only can get like a little bit of a window into like animation and stuff and like hearing this kind of advice of like um networking and knowing that it's like okay to like come up to people and talk and that yeah, it's it's not easy. It's like it takes a little uh a little like yeah bravery and courage and like all right uh, you know and it's and it's an okay it's okay to do it at these events and and to reach out through email and all that yeah mm -hmm. oh absolutely mm -hmm. um yeah i think when you you know at least at my stage in my career like i i'd love the opportunity to be a mentor you know with anybody um you know there's definitely people in the business that i sort of young people that i track and try and help when i hear that they're looking work or need some advice or i mean it's it's sort of there's a giving back aspect to it definitely mm. so yeah everyone should just reach out to in animation it, you know it's, we're not like you know not that you're not trying to reach brad pitt you know and yeah or something you know <laughs> we're just no one in it no one in animation i feel like should really feel like they're beyond you know being reached out to by anybody yeah i mean obviously there's gonna be like there's like like always kind of like sometimes a level of like different kind of clout depending on like sure. you know like uh, how much it's been covered in the press or or whatever but i feel like there's just so many shows so many different people and we we there's like you know like there's not only just like pen ward or like rebecca shucker out there there's like so many people that right. we can that are um more accessible and like really excited to share I um I also have some questions from the fans. Um, so some of the questions are from our patrons, patrons of the show. Um, I think this one's really fun from Bialin Spare. Uh, did your creative process change working on your personal work now versus working with other people's work in the past? And if so, how? So it's for both of you guys. Yeah, I mean, I know Jeremiah is doing a lot of sort of creating right now of shows and ideas um, and I've done it over the years um, but it 
can be yeah it, it can be challenging because I, I get in such a mode of like you know being someone who you know makes a show for someone you know for a studio mm-hmm. for a person for a team um, sometimes it's challenging challenging to go back and say oh wait what do i really want to do just for me you know why did i get into all this mm-hmm. art stuff like what's what's the most me thing because in it's probably not going to be anything even related to animation or, or making money. You know, it's just going to be like, what do you want to do? Um, like on Friday, I had like an hour or so ended a little bit early at work. And I, I was just staring at the drawing pad and I was just like, I just want to do Lord of the Rings sketches (laughs) just out of my Mm -hmm. head. And so I was just like, I just did that. And it was so satisfying just to do something that had no, no meaning beyond just what I wanted to do. So that's kind of where I'm at now. And maybe something like that will inspire something that I could sell or do a graphic novel of or do a show of. But it can be challenging to jump back and forth. But mm. uh, Jeremiah is definitely doing a lot of creating right now. Yeah. for uh, You know, I feel fortunate enough to where, you know, the show ended. And now I have that kind of freedom at the moment to, to just create and take a breather. So... Right now, it's just working on different story ideas and pitches, and and you know, I got a couple of animated ideas for series, and then you know, some features, and so that's all I've been really doing for the last few months is just working on new pitches, um, and getting those ready to take out. Um, that's... and yeah, it's very much just whatever I've learned through the production of the show has just kind of given me that insight of okay let me let me make sure i i tackle this uh this problem ahead of time or you know i think maybe the production pipeline might it might this this idea i want to do might not be you know production friendly let me find some kind of a workaround or um in writing spec scripts for these pitches it's very much you know trying to find a way to which is silly. I shouldn't have to be doing this at this point, but it's it's just you work in it and you just know already what's going to be noted or, or requested or demanded. And it's like thinking, what's my character count at? You know, uh, how many of these are reused characters for later? Um, you know, in the production, would these characters count as the character count for this episode or would these characters already be you know, like the main cast with these just count outside of the, it would, they wouldn't go towards the, the character count in the script. How many locations am I at? Um, so yeah, the, the production and running this whole thing for what, it was almost three years, um, mm-hmm. has really kind of put some perspective on, on the way I create now. So yeah, I would say, I would say it has influenced the way I, I operate now. Do you, would you say that you're also um, spending more time writing or do you feel like you're spending as much time writing, like preparing for these shows as you were when you were preparing for Dogs in Space? I would say it's the same amount. If anything, it might be a little bit more, um, mm-hmm. slightly though. But like this, uh, I have this series that I just finished the pitch Bible for and I've been pitching it for a little over a month now. Mm-hmm. Um Normally, pitch Bibles are around, I don't know, 10 pages, maybe, Mm. Um, traditionally. Dogs, when I first wrote the pitch Bible, was about 48 pages. Yeah. (laughs) 
And then uh, once we went into um, development and we brought in our head writer and Adam was on it and we really started to hone down on, on the rules because, you know, it's a sci-fi show. So mm -hmm. we have to have all the loopholes and the rules and what's possible, what's not possible. Mm -hmm. um, put into place, you know, as far as how many dogs are on this ship, you know, what's the council for? How many people would be on or how many dogs would be on this council? Uh, are we ever going to go to a research room? Are we good? You know, do we need to know who the mechanics are of this whole thing? And how do mm -hmm. people, how do these dogs get around? You know, um, do they have transportation? Do they need transportation? Do we even need to go into that? Or do we just rely on jump cuts? You know, the character already walking to wherever they're going. Um, you know, we fleshed out that pitch Bible. It came out to be around 84 pages at the end. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that makes sense. Like post-development, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. or like, would you say that makes sense also, Adam? <laughs> I'm all for five-page pitch Bible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some can be that. Uh, Adventure Time was, their their Bible was crude. Um, it was, it was crude. But yeah, you guys can actually, um, I'm to the audience, like you guys can actually Google it. It's very easy to find because um, Fred Seibert uh, put it on um, script, script. It's it's very easy to find. So, um, but yeah, like, so to, to the audience, like definitely look it up because there's um, uh, the, the Adventure Time Bible is free online. And also Jeremiah mentioned the art of BoJack Horseman and the Pitch Bible is in the art book. So it's really great because mm -hmm. um, there's also this full interview with uh, Raphael and um, the Tornante producer and kind of like explaining what they liked about Raphael as a creator and also kind of all of the elements that were in the Bible. So it's those are like super uh, valuable documents to like look at so you have a better idea how to format your your pitch bible for sure uh, wow that's so funny yeah i do agree like five pages that would be amazing yeah, uh to Jer be able to yeah jeremiah what did they what did netflix what did they say about your bible oh that you know it's the most thorough pitch bible and they use it as examples for for development uh, people in development now uh, because of the way we did it and it was it was always um the the information in there was always kind of vital it wasn't stuff that was just fluff it wasn't redundant it was stuff we really did need to know and and we wrote it in a way to where it was it was for the everybody in the studio you know writers the art department this is what we want to do with the art this is what we want to do with the episodes and the the style of um you know, the percentage of comedy to drama to um, whatever else. It was just making sure it had the content for everybody. And so, yeah, Netflix, they, they let us know that that's the pitch Bible that they send out as examples to people to kind of get them, like, get their heads wrapped around what they would prefer to see in there. I know one thing I stuck in that I'm I'm not sure if I started it, or whatnot, but everybody kind of really likes this idea. I did the, um, I did like, it, I think it was like four pages of just character relationships. Um, My and, idea. Okay. And but yeah, we stuck it in but there. I read it, I think I read it in the, one of the Pitch Bible books, like Bojack or the, the Adventure mm -hmm. Time uh, art of. Yeah, and it just went over the idea of, it was more for the writers, I think. 
but I think the executives really loved it as well because it gave them kind of insight on on the dynamics of the show and how these characters mm-hmm. work. Because you know you can make you can make a whole cast of characters and you you go okay this is a cast of pe- characters I don't really have a connection with or know what they're about. But having mm-hmm. the relationships kind of gave you some insight onto every character outside of their just bio, you know. And so mm-hmm. you would have, I would have Garbage and Stella, I would have an image of them standing next to each other, and then I would write beneath them, you know, Garbage sees Stella in this way and treats gets Stella this way. And then, you know, the next paragraph, Stella sees Garbage as this and treats Garbage as this. Um, and this is their kind of dynamic, you know. And then I'll move on to maybe Garbage and Ed, Garbage and Loaf, Garbage and Chonies. And then Stella and Loaf, Stella and Ed, Stella and Chonies. And I would just make sure I got all those combinations of the, at least the main cast of five. Um, just so everybody knows, okay, Garbage and Chonies is kind of a one-sided thing. You know, Garbage kind of just takes and Chonies gives, but it's not, there's not a whole lot of mutual uh, respect in some ways there. You know, Garbage is just, mm-hmm. gimme, gimme, gimme. Uh, Chonies, you know, I care about you, but, you know, it's 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 all... It's still very much just kind of a self-centered character, hmm. um, which was fun to do later on in in season two, where Chonis gets kidnapped, and we finally get to see Garbage kind of you know uh, spiral out of control emotionally because now Chonis isn't in his life, um, hmm. which is fun. You know that's that's how you get those good character developments. That's how you get the good writing is mm-hmm. from you know working with what is there. And then you get those little moments of, you know, turning it on its head and saying, what would happen if Garbage didn't have Chonies there? You know, would he continue to be like, oh, well, I'd, you know, I didn't even notice you were gone. Or would he spiral out of control? You know, we got to see mm-hmm. what would happen. Um, so we we had that. And I would I think that's what uh, executives at Atomic and Netflix both kind of praised was having the relationship chapter. Um, mm. And so that's what I would recommend. One of the things people do in their in their pitch bibles is just make sure you have that kind of a chapter where you get to see the character relationships to better understand the dynamics and to let more importantly to let the executives understand the dynamics of the characters. Mm. Yeah, and that and that also kind of through the the kind of relationships you create, you also kind of um, show the tone of your show in that way because like like if it's a drama the relationships are going to be like more probably like dramatic or or serious but if it's a comedy it's going to be more like lighthearted and and fun Mm -hmm. and you can kind of sell that through those that's really smart that's really great to hear um we have a, a another question from a patron uh joe binson if Dogs in Space ever were to get a movie, would you prefer to make it live action or keep it cartoony? Oh man, I would love a live action. I mean, oh yeah. When we went into production, like I really did let everybody know, you know, the art department, uh, the writers, um, and even the animators, because you know I really try to to push away from squash and stretch because these aren't. I always kind of mm. told them they're not cartoons. They're not you know, these are real dogs we're sending out. You know, these mm. are real dogs who are just genetically enhanced and they look a little bubbly, but they have bones. You can't hyperextend the bones. They're gonna, they're gonna snap. Um, mm. You'll break them. Um, so it was very much the writers, art department, animators, across the board, it was always pitching it 
treat this as if this was a live action or if this was reality if we actually did this and we actually enhanced dogs and we sent them out how would this actually play out you know we're doing it in a comedy format of course but let's get as logical and grounded as we possibly can down to the rules of a council they would they would automatically need a council they would need some kind of a, a board to to dictate and and pass judgment and make decisions on behalf of the whole crew uh how does captains work how do you know how many people to a crew why is there so many exploration ships that go out you know what's the purpose of the exploration ships compared to the embark itself what do all the other dogs on the embark do um mm. it was really getting down to all the logic even down to like the character or the furniture in the offices if you notice whenever we are in the on the embark itself my whole thing was logically if the world was ending and we have no resources and we were it was a time crunch and we don't have time to make things look nice and they wanted mm -hmm. to send dogs out mm -hmm. what would they do they would just get desks they would get you know school chairs they would just load it up with whatever the heck they can find they're not going to make fancy star trek seats they're not going to mm -hmm. do it they're not going to make fancy desks for these dogs so we can have a cool nasa space station situation they're just gonna plop whatever in there just so they can get by um mm. so even down to that idea was making sure this was real so if you watch the show and you see any of the furniture in there it's grounded on it being earth items it's not space station desks it's earth desks um, and that was also my way of making sure that the audience knew what kind of world they came from. They came from our Earth. They weren't just in space. You know, they weren't mm -hmm. just a Star Trek fleet. And you knew they came from Earth, but nothing on the Enterprise looked like Earth. You know what I mean? Like, there was nothing mm -hmm. in there that made you go, oh, okay, they're they're from Earth. Like, you never thought of the planet Earth. And so, yeah, for me, it was always treating this as real as we possibly could. Um, so my head, whenever I read a script, whenever I looked at characters, whenever I looked at, uh, the staging or the, uh, the environments of things, it was always looking at it as if this was a real thing, if this was a real story. Um, mm. so I would, I, just for giggles, I would really like the idea of doing a live action, though I don't think it would do well. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be like, uh, you know, any other, I mean, it, it, Maybe I used to maybe be like a, the biggest fan of the cat from space, the Disney movie. You know, those like direct to the mm. uh, VHS. I love those. Or like, what's it called? The one um, with the cat and the two dogs and they are. Um, cat and two dogs. And they're like uh, being dropped off for like a vacation at like somebody's uh, ranch or like a farm. And then they, the, the they animals think they're being. They think they're being abandoned, so they go on this great journey. Oh, uh, the uh, uh, Homeward Bound. Yes, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love those movies as a kid. <laughs> they were my, my favorite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, those are great, and um, but it was it's more to the idea of like uh, you know, Sonic, Sonic the Hedgehog. But I guess True. I guess Sonic did well, right, as a live action. I think it. I think. I think so. I mean, there's a second movie, so it did well enough that there was a second movie. Yeah, uh, I'm wondering if they're gonna do a third, but I guess it would work as a live action. I think there's an audience for that. I suppose. 
CGI dogs or dogs chewing on caramel? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think CG for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Though I wouldn't mind putting a gag in there to where, you know, we're making fun of that kind of mouth movement uh, that doesn't really sync up with the uh, the words. No. But it would, you know, it'd be one of those meta jokes, a one-off thing. But yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind the idea if someone presented me with the idea, like, hey, if we want to do a movie and we want to do live action, I think I would definitely be in, um, re- oh, regardless nice. if it does good or not. I, I would just love to see that. I just want to see him in like you know, dog suits <laughs> with like famous actors, just Robert Downey Jr. playing. <laughs> garbage <laughs> like dog, uh what's that one suit. show uh wilfred oh yeah are they oh. just in dog suits where it's just people in dog suits oh my gosh that sounds so funny actors in dog suits that would be hilarious but doing a feature like a 2d feature i feel like in america is really hard like you know mm-hmm. anime does it so well and believably and awesome to watch but man america with 2d features they don't get it yet no or at least not anymore um i don't know i really don't know why that is i it might just be part of the culture as well uh, i think it's also i don't know i feel like it's just because like now they like all the talent that was animation was like went into boards and like because it's changed so much now it's all cg so like I, I don't know. I've heard from a lot of friends that it's been really hard staffing animators in the U.S. because um, there isn't really the talent anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, that is kind of like it was refreshing. I just went to Canada for Loud House and, you know, it's where they animate mm-hmm. the show. And it's like, yeah, they're all like animators and they want to talk about animation. And, you know, it's sort of like going back in time when you go to Canada and, or, you know, go to these other mm-hmm. countries. Like in Korea, I got to go to Seoul for shira and it's just they're drawing pencil on paper or they're animating just the old school and it's, it's it was really fun to go back and see that yeah that's really that's really cool that's the thing it's like yeah um it's funny because i because i'm french so i i'm i go back to france sometimes and i i see like there's also just like a little there's like a little gang of animators and they're really good and everybody knows who they are and they they're always just like moving from the production to another that's like the one that has like oh that's actually paying animators in france because that's also the tricky part right is like if you would have um i mean i've heard that there's like a couple of animation jobs uh, in Texas and what's the name? Powerhouse is, oh, is that yeah, the name of the it, studio? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for the one that the studio does, Castlevania, and like they have some animators, animators there. But um, but I've definitely had uh friends who were doing flash animation with like Newgrounds and stuff, and they had to move to Canada to pursue animation, animation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know like people like Brad Bird would, you know do anything to be able to uh, do a 2d movie again oh yeah oh wow well listen to that netflix <laughs> yeah right yeah. they yeah, got their own they got their own problems right now <laughs> <laughs> i know right they're not, they're not thinking of brad bird um i have a question from uh instagram that's actually kind of fun because uh we just started recently um sharing the um the promo pictures of the episodes on instagram originally it was only on twitter but now we're starting also on instagram 
And we had a question from Asinonix100. Did you initially plan on Stella being a secondary protagonist or did it just work out that way? I think that's really uh, fun. Secondary protagonist? Oh, as far as her getting captaincy and all that? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that was always the plan. I always wanted, I liked what they did in Star Trek. You know, the idea of Picard would be in Next Generation. Picard would, oh, I need to go down to the planet. I need to do something. Um, uh, what's his name? Spock. Your was it Spock? No, Spock wasn't in Generation, was he? Uh, no. No. Data. Okay, I'm get. I'm Data. Um, or whoever, whomever else. Uh, what was it? Striker. Yeah. Um, uh, you're in oh, charge. You're losing you're... your nerd. You're losing your nerd cred, Jeremiah. <laughs> I can't say anything because I'm <laughs> I'm looking to get into Star Trek, uh, but I have never watched any of it. Oh, so I catch up on. Oh, and it's, I know, right? It's, and it's dense, you know. With uh, with pitching the show, I had to figure out what kind of show this was going to be, what kind of sci-fi show was this going to be. So. I knew I knew enough of Star Wars, and I was like, "This show's not Star Wars. We're not dealing with a whole lot of of that reality. Um, we're we're more exploring planets and and really, you know, uh, following a crew. Um, so it it kind of had to lean more Star Treks, and I didn't know anything about Star Trek, and so during development when it was just me working on the pitch Bible and really figuring out how many characters, how many dogs, what kind of spaceship, all that stuff. I watched a lot of Star Trek and um, it was, it was dense. It was really tough. I got through the first, uh, the original Star Trek series, which I never knew was canceled. Um, mm. I'm watching it and all of a sudden there's no more episodes. I'm like, what, what, where's the rest? Uh, and, I was like, oh, okay, they got canceled, and then they came back with Next Generation, um, and I watched all that, which was, I think, like, seven, seven, I don't know, seven to twelve seasons or something, and there were, like, 27 episodes a season, and they were long, too. I think, I think they really could have trimmed every episode down to, like, 10, 15 minutes, and you would still get a good story, but a lot of it was just like standing around, a lot of, you know, pauses. Um, That's really funny because when I was working on the Thundercats roar, re- uh, the yeah, so the reboot of Thundercats, uh, we were watching the whole show, original show, as we were working, and uh, we were playing the episodes and. Uh, two times speed because everything was very slow at the time yeah you do have those moments when they're just kind of standing around and looking and they're just like hmm oh, i love the i love the reboot of thundercats yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, so, i mean i could talk about it for a long time but we're still like yeah yeah it's it, it was yeah so cartoony and fun yeah so with uh, with that it was very much um okay here's here's what i can what I can take away from it, and and this is how I would want to do a sci-fi space show. Um, but in within Star Trek, it was always somebody taking the chair at some any given point. You know, Strike would then go down and help Picard, and so the the next chain in command would be captain, and the next chain of command would be captain. You got to see almost everybody gets to sit in that seat at some point, um, mm. and then someone would leave and go join another ship, or someone would 
you know, die or someone would get lost in space or something and they would come back later on in, in a future episode or something. There was always some kind of thing happening. And then around that time as well, I believe Orville just started. Um, hmm. Which is um, Seth. Seth's uh Seth Mac. Seth MacFarlane. Huh? Seth MacFarlane. Seth MacFarlane. I couldn't remember his name. Um, Seth MacFarlane's show, which he originally pitched to be a Star Trek show, and then they said no, we're we're gonna pass. And he's like, screw it, I'm gonna make my own space show anyway. Then, which, <laughs> and he does it as he does it in a Star Trek format. It's to me, it's it's Star Trek. There's there is no you know. You can't. You don't. It's it's Star Trek. It's canon to me, in some respects, and so it's a great show. And in there as well, they did a whole lot of you know characters coming and going, and so for me it was I want this show to have that Star Trek vibe. I want to be able to make this show to where it appeals to the Star Trek fans out there, and it mm -hmm. feels, you know, familiar to them. So the idea of having characters come and go and seeing that it actually does work. And, mm. and, you know, my show was very much sci-fi meets sitcom. To me, in my head, this show is Star Trek meets Frasier and just sticking that together. Mm. Or Star Trek in the office and you stick that together. That's basically what I was trying to do here. And even mm. in, even in um, comedies like The Office, you had, you know, Michael quit his job. He went to go start another job. Uh, Dwight got fired. He went to go work at, at, um, where did he go? Office? office max or he went somewhere um hmm. he went to another company and you just had characters disappearing coming back adding new characters to the cast um jim leaving to to start a company or when he left to a different branch altogether and he wasn't in every episode with the with the ca main cast we were seeing him with these you know b characters at a different branch until his character came back like you saw hmm. And I, I had proof. Like, here's the proof in both sci-fi and sitcom comedies that you can have characters move around. And this idea of, oh, don't, you can't break up the cast. You can't because you'll lose audience. You'll you'll lose people mm -hmm. if, if you do this kind of stuff. It's like, no. These successful things have done it. We're going to try it as well. So for me, it was always, the idea was always going to be that Stella would be captain. There's mm -hmm. There was always ideas of moving Stella to a different ship, moving Happy around as well. Um, you know, the Kira was a, a good example of what we were able to do of having a, a character come on as part of the cast, the main cast, and then having her leave. Her story arc finished and she got to leave. And then going into season two, adding Pepper because now we have uh, Stella as captain, so we need a tactical officer. So adding a new cast member altogether. And doing stuff like that was just always part of the formula. I know I got a lot of like, uh, you know, squeamish uh, reactions from executives. Like, hmm. I don't know, you know, we really shouldn't be moving characters around. We shouldn't be introducing new characters to the main cast. I was hmm. like, no, we're going we're gonna to try it. And I think people like Pepper. I think people, hmm. you know, really enjoyed what we did with Kira and having her arc end and having her have that, you know, happy ending that, you know, she, hmm. she didn't know she was able to have um and letting her go home so 
yeah, the idea was always to let Stella evolve and even, you know, uh, as far as what I planned on doing with future seasons, there's so many things I would want to do as far as having these characters evolve and move on and, and really develop and seeing where they actually do end up landing at the end. Mm. That's really great. That's such a great answer. Um, it's crazy to, to hear like how much um, thought was already put in at the very beginning that like you had a lot of the art. It sounds like you had a lot of the arcs figured out um, yeah. when you pitched. Yeah. yeah. Happy was going to have a really big arc. Um, you know, there was even potentials of having Stella get something of like a mini series spinoff with her adventures and then having her uh, having her come like like a um a, a little mini series between seasons you know because mm -hmm. something would happen we would see what she was up to while the season continued without her um mm -hmm. and then to have her come back and we have context on what where she was and what she was doing mm -hmm. um same thing with happy and yeah there was always just a lot of i had like something called a additional content pitch bible mm. i i wrote because i did my research i looked up stuff and you know a lot of what i was reading was hey when you when you pitch a show make it season one only like really your pitch because none of these executives are going to give you a full series they're gonna they're only interested in that first season they want to know they don't know if they want more or more seasons you know they're not they're not gonna really mm -hmm. commit to that kind of thing. They want to see what season one does. So make your pitch bible really season one focused because that's all they're thinking about right now. So I I use that advice. I wrote the pitch bible. I said this is the world. This is what they're gonna be doing. Here's the arc that I see happening in season one, and here's where I potentially see characters going later. And that was it. Mm -hmm. um, and then I would go into these meetings, and you know I would get. Uh, suggestions when I was interviewing for executives and, and writers I'd be like oh it would be so funny if this happened or you know I kind of see like this happening to this character and I'll go well actually that is gonna kind of happen to that character but it's gonna happen like in season three or that's something I want to hold off on because I want to do this with this character and then this character is gonna go over here and then and, then, and the executives were like that none of that was in your pitch bible you know, it kind of caught them off guard. We don't really know. We didn't know all this stuff. I was like, yeah, there's other content I have. And I have a, like a a uh, outline of where I want the characters to go. And, you know, how many seasons I would want to tell the story. In. And they're like, okay, well, send that over. We'll look at that too. So there was an extra pitch Bible that I, I had as well. That kind of just went into, here's where I see things happening in the future. If we get to do it, cool. Um, so yeah, there was always there was always an end in mind for this show. I still know where this show would end, um, and where most of the characters would be at the end. Um, but yeah, that was that's just how I work. I need to know where it's gonna go. Otherwise, you know, you you run the risk of writing yourself into a corner and oh, I don't know how this show ends. You know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And wanting to do it in a shorter lifespan opposed to you know nine seasons and a movie or something it's what the sh what the story needs to be as far as length to tell the story correctly and not try to milk it you know there was never i don't mm -hmm. ever want to do a show 
to where I just want more seasons just for the sake of having more seasons. Mm -hmm. Um, because then you run the risk of things kind of falling a little short or a little flat, or you could just tell they don't, they didn't know where they were going and they had to wrap it up. This was their last season. So they had to tie up all the loose ends. Right. Um, which I think, you know, happened with, uh, Steven a little bit. And I think happened more so with, uh, Adventure Time, where it was just like, you had so many arcs happening by the end and you Mm -hmm. had to tell all of them within the last like one or two episodes. And it was just got a lot of cut twos and, you know, uh, got a lot of montages of where are they now? Um, and it's just too much, you know, even in some comic books, you got stuff like that. Um, yeah. Where you, oh yeah. That happens a lot just, in manga as well, where they get like, uh, cause it's very similar to TV where they like kind of keep getting renewed to mm-hmm. keep making chapters for their manga. And cause it's serialized, it's like a, a weekly release. And sometimes you can tell that they got the acts and it's like, you got three chapters to wrap it up, but it's like, oof, they're like in the middle of a big arc and it's, Usually it's kind of funny because I, this is just a little bit of a tangent, but um, especially in these like sports anime or sports manga where like they're in the middle of like a big tournament and you can tell they got the axe and they're like, well, our team just loses. And it's kind of interesting because it's not something that you expect, you know, for the end of a show. Um, But yeah, just a, just a thought (laughs) of like. It amazes me the the, the variety of anime out there like my son watches uh mm. one that's based around chess and i'm like oh yeah 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 yeah. oh he loves it um and it's just yeah it just blows my mind that they do cartoons of they could yeah they well i think it's because they i don't know maybe this is me being speculative and crazy but um anime works mostly by adapting a very popular manga so it's Mm. it's basically all ip which is kind of the direction we're going right now where it's like because it's so much harder to pitch an original ip to be directly made into a cartoon when i feel like cartoons are are, i don't know um i'm digressing here but i feel like sometimes cartoons are like usually a big ad they're a big ad for another product right sure so it's it's either an ad for like merch or like if you look at a show like Arcane, it's a big ad for, for League of Legend. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like for anime, it's like the, the anime helps boost the sales of the, the manga or the whichever uh, weekly series, like um, publishing uh, volume it is. Because they have like different, right? They have like the, the Shonen Jump. They have the Kodansha and like all different types of, it's like kind of cable, but in paper, which is kind of funny. Right. What you think about, yeah. Yeah, it's, wow. Yeah, it's crazy to think sometimes that, yeah, when you get the axe and you're like, oh, I got to tie up everything. That must be pretty crazy. Yeah, definitely um, the idea, at least for now, um, and in this new dynamic shift in animation uh anything i pitch now is more treated as if they were just uh mini series so anything mm-hmm. i have right now has been written and formatted in a way to where every season would be its mm-hmm. own story that way if this show doesn't get renewed for any other episode or any more seasons at least the story was told um, right. If I get renewed for another season, then we do another story arc, and we're following a completely different plot. 
within the context right. of the world and the characters, yeah, you would still have the same characters and whatnot, but it would be a new uh, situation that they find themselves in. Mm. Uh, that way you're not, you're not risking not getting any more seasons and then you don't get to finish your story. Um, because that's kind of the way it works now. You're not guaranteed anything. Um, especially now that we're so bogged down with numbers and algorithms and all this stuff where it's just like, there is no gut instincts really anymore. It's very much, it's a numbers game and that's, that's basically it. You know, Mm. if, if Parks and Rec was a Netflix show, it would have got canceled season two and we would have never have gotten this great show because if anyone who's watched parks and rec that first season was hard to watch mm-hmm. you know it was it was hard to watch even after you love the show and you go back to rewatch from the beginning it is brutal trying to get through that first season of parks and rec mm-hmm. but you know you have you have these these broadcasters and you know in a, in a time where algorithms weren't really a thing they relied on gut feelings, instincts, and they kept making a season. Season three started getting some traction, season four, and then it just snowballs into this great masterpiece of a show. But, you know, in this new world where we're following numbers and algorithms and stuff, they would have looked at those numbers from season one and two of Parks and Rec, and they would have said, no, this show's not going to make it, which is a shame, you know, mm-hmm. because now we're living in this world where a lot of these shows have the potential to be these great things, and to try to like judge off the numbers of their first seasons is not mm. the greatest mindset or the you know it's not the greatest strategy in my opinion um well i agree because i hear a lot of people who are like oh you just got to push past season one or two for like a lot of shows right. and I'm like oh we don't really get that opportunity anymore because you no. have to be a hit in like 15 seconds mm-hmm. and that's <laughs> that's not you know that's yeah and then they're wondering like why aren't our shows doing good or you know why why are we losing subscribers well if you're only letting the shows go for two seasons and people know that's your your structure that's part of your your structure is they don't mm-hmm. they don't normally finish their shows then how do you expect people to be loyal and like invest in your shows if they're already with that mentality of you know mm-hmm. 70% of their shows don't make it past season 2 why would I want to get invested in these things and kind of get my heart broken when I don't get more um, yeah. so with all that in context it's it's just to say that's just the culture and that's where my mindset is as a creator and what I would advise other people to do would be to make your your show in some kind of a friendly format to where if this if this is the only season you got at least the story had us an ending to it and just have it to where you have in mind the next plot the next situation for the characters in a a following season that doesn't really have to be told within multiple seasons to get to the end of it um you just play it as practically you know in in some sense glorified films where you know uh Shrek 1 really you don't it it wasn't a two-parter you didn't have to watch Shrek 2 to get the ending you know what I mean Shrek 2 Mm -hmm. was a completely different story Shrek 3 different story so I would advise to try to set up your seasons that way that way uh, season ends you got the ending to that story you didn't get picked up for more seasons that's a shame but at least you're not leaving viewers hanging yeah, kind of honestly, kind of like Buffy. Buffy did a really good job at doing that, like having an arc in every season, like tying up like all the 
the ends of the arc and then obviously like they always ended on like a, a hook that was like well now i need to watch the next season but it's it's not like a, a big arc it's just like oh what is buffy up to next but it's yeah very much like that like each season is like its own villain and its own mm-hmm. yeah classic um yeah yeah oh just to think we could have had a buffy animated show and <laughs> we never did oh. um we're we're running a little bit longer on time, so I'm just gonna ask you guys a final question of Creative Block, and you're gonna try to answer it in a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's very it's, it's tough. It's a big ask, but um, when you guys do, you guys uh, ever feel Creative Block? Like, do you ever feel like you're in in an art rut? And if that is the case, what do you do about it? How do you get over it? Um. For me, I'd say I feel like you have to draw through it at the end of the day. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, we're all artists, we're all drawers. Um, so I think you need to just keep uh, grabbing your drawing pad and just keep doodling and drawing. But it's also, I think, like getting away from the rat race as much as mm-hmm. you can, you know, because animation will kind of grind you out and spit you out. So I would say in one sentence, I'd say just keep drawing. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would recommend the same thing, which sounds like the worst kind of advice because obviously you're in a block. You're <laughs> you're stuck. But the the remedy is to just do it anyway. Um so for me I get stuck a lot, you know, and, and especially after a show you get this um mentality or this pressure of I have the next thing I come up with has to be just as good or, or stuff like that. Um so there's a lot of intimidation that already kind of is piled on top of of creating or drawing or writing but it's just doing it just start writing a sentence start you know write a dialogue of a character talking to another character so start drawing doodles of of the characters you're thinking about or you know any of that stuff just start it and it and with full expectation that you're doing it it's gonna be crap it's gonna be the worst crap in the world but you know in reading like uh, creativity inc and uh, um and bob Iger's book it's very much Mm. fail as often and as fast as you possibly can because Mm -hmm. then you can say okay this didn't work this didn't work this didn't work this didn't work now we know what to do and now i'm on a roll now i can i can move forward and and start actually doing the good stuff but yeah you're you have to just if you're blocked force yourself to do it but being kind to yourself and knowing this is going to look terrible or this is going to read terrible but i just need to do this and then you kind of just start snowballing and then you get the rhythm and then it's it's going to start being good again um but yeah i think me and adam are in agreement just force yourself to do something bad that is great. I think this is a. Um, I think is that is that the Stephen King advice? I feel like he, he said something like that, where it's like, yeah, just just write, just do it. <laughs> I think it does really work um, when, especially when you have a deadline, you just gotta push through. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's no different from like working, you know, uh, working out. You know, the idea is just get to the gym. You know, yeah, don't... yeah, yeah. Don't worry about how many sets you're going to do. Don't worry about how much weight. The hardest part is just getting there. And if you could get there, that's 
you know, pat yourself on the back. That's what counts the most. So it's the same mentality. If you just sit and do something, I don't care if it's the nastiest doodle in the world, just do it, you know, and just be, be happy and applaud yourself that you actually showed up, you know? Very true. Um, I'm going to take just a second to thank everybody who asked uh, questions and offered drawing prompts. So we had L Draws on Twitter, at Ilzine, at Xuniverse uh, one and at LPapucho132. Um, really appreciate all of you guys' questions and prompts. Uh, sorry we didn't get to all of them. It's just that it was such an interesting discussion and we had so much to cover that... Um, we just I just kind of picked the ones that I thought were um, going to move the conversation forward. We also had from Instagram, we, you can now ask questions and prompts on Instagram. We had at Kitsudans underscore art, at King Tenta, and Asinonix100. Uh, so thank, thank you guys. And I will say that this is the end of this creative block. Adam and Jeremiah, thank you so much for being our guests and sharing your story. And thanks to our listeners. Follow us on Twitter. It's at Creative Block, Creative Without the Vowels. And on Instagram, which is at Creative Without the Vowels dot block, where we ask for drawing prompts and questions to ask our guests. Huge thanks to your editor, Clemens, for editing the podcast and Malik for helping us produce the show. If you love the show, then support it on Patreon. Becoming a patron gets you early access to interviews as well as bonus episodes. Click the link in the description of this episode. I've been your host, V. Keep being creative and I'll see you next week. Bye.